0: Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for almost 40 years and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Today's guest, Valerie Contella, describes herself as a recovering perfectionist. She's the perfect guest to help wrap up this year because her message is a true self-reflection about her life, her thoughts, and her diabetes management over decades. But before we dive in, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy, just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media, sign up for the e-newsletter, and subscribe to my newly updated YouTube channel where this episode will soon be live. All right. Let's get started. I'm so excited to reconnect with Valerie. And uh, Valerie, tell us where you're calling in from.
1: I am in Santa Barbara, California, and it's cold here, which the rest of the country would not think it's cold, but we're in our 40s and 50s, and it feels a little wintry finally.
0: Okay, that's what it is right now in Oklahoma. So that's interesting, because I would think you guys would be more in the 70s. So I'm sorry for your cold weather (laughs) Well, it does
1: warm up during the day with the sun coming out.
0: Right. Well, uh, I start most episodes with your diagnosis story, because even though we're all diagnosed with the same disease, our diagnosis can be very different. And I think you're one of the few people that have had diabetes a little longer than I have.
1: Yes. When I first read uh, your story, I thought Amber and I are diabetes twins in some ways. (laughs) I was 10 years old. It was 1980. And I was not feeling well. I was feeling kind of sluggish. We had visited California. For Christmas. We lived in Illinois at the time and I wasn't feeling well. And between Christmas and the end of the school year, I started having to go to the bathroom all the time at night, drinking extraordinary amounts of water. I actually had an experience where my fifth grade class, we went on a field trip to downtown Chicago and I had to go to the bathroom so badly. They had to stop two full school buses of fifth graders Mm. to get me off the bus to go to the bathroom in a hotel in downtown Chicago, which was, as you can imagine, mortifying. Yeah. And soon after that, my mom took me to the doctor for my physical. And of course, they checked my urine and astronomically high ketones and sent me to the hospital that night for a week-long inpatient stay to learn about this disease. And it wasn't entirely unexpected because both of my mom's parents are identical twins. And my grandmother's, yeah, interesting, grandmother's twin sister had type one and died of it when she was young. And then my grandfather had type two, and then my dad's dad also had type two. And so there was some awareness of diabetes in the family, but I was certainly unprepared for it as a 10-year-old.
0: Well, and with that, having a family history, which I don't hear that very often, which sounds crazy considering we've always thought it was a genetic disease, is... I would think considering the history there, did you think of it as a dissonance?
1: I, you know, I've never really thought of it that way. I'm so grateful for the technology that mm-hmm. we have now. And this just the huge strides that have been made in medicine since the time my grandmother's twin sister was diagnosed, you know, in the probably it would have been around 1930, 1940. And hmm. You know, just to imagine what life, how life is so different, even for me, as in the 42 years I've had diabetes. I mean, I was taking one shot a day and peeing on a stick and trying to, (laughs) you know, get some kind of assessment of where I was with my blood sugars and then went to multiple daily injections. And I've been on an insulin pump for almost 26 years. My son is tw- um, 25 in January and I've had it my whole pregnancy with him almost.
0: And we'll get into that here in a second yeah. with so just out of curiosity, because I started on two daily injections and I was told, you know, don't eat sugar. Here's the list of everything you should, cannot do. So do you feel like in those earlier years with the one shot being on the stick yeah. that you followed the rules?
1: Well, I followed the rules until probably I was in junior high, high school. You know, I did the best I could because I was a very rule-following, compliant kid, and I wanted to please other people. But then in high school, I played basketball, and I would think, oh, I just played a basketball game, so I should be able to go eat a burger and fries and a shake with the rest of the team (laughs) after the game. And I (laughs) am... Very horrified that I did this, but my form of rebellion was my diabetes. And Mm -hmm. I lied to my doctors all the time. And my mom, bless her heart, defended me because she couldn't imagine that I would be lying about this. Right. But, you know, probably. 30 years later, I still see that doctor. I mean, he is not my doctor any longer, but I see him at the clinic and I actually made an amends to him. And I just apologized for <laughs> being an, a rebellious teenager because I wasn't taking care of myself, but I was too ashamed to admit it.
0: That's interesting. And I wanna go just a when I was in high school, that was kind of my rebellious time as well. And I was a cheerleader and we're all working out and I was so tired all the time. And cause I was staying up late and talking on the phone and doing all the things that kids were doing. But I would eat a candy bar before a workout because I'm thinking I need the energy because everybody else could do that. And I didn't think about it that way. And now looking back, I was like, damn, that was the worst thing. And it was making you more tired now that you know how it affects you. So if you're young and listening to this, think about that because it really does impact how you feel.
1: Well, and I think if if your diagnosis kind of the first couple of years was anything like mine, you know, the diabetes educators came in and she gave you the food exchange and she said, you can have one fruit, one vegetable, one carb, and one protein, one fat, and that's your dinner meal. And it was very, very restrictive and it didn't seem like a plan that anyone could actually live with, especially not as a kid or teenager. And I definitely have developed some disordered thinking about food because yeah. of that very restrictive start to it. and yeah, it's I'm so grateful that for the kids today, you have multiple daily injections, you have pumps, you have dexcoms, yeah. you can you can live a normal quote unquote life and be diabetic without sacrificing being able to go out with your friends and hike in the middle of the afternoon if you yeah. want or go know what the carbs are so you can. Have a treat, whatever that looks like to you.
0: Well, I think I'm so glad that we're finally talking about our relationship with food. And people in my everyday life that have known me since the age of eight never knew until recently, I would say, that my relationship with food is very different. And not that I struggle with it necessarily, but is my plate healthy? Am I getting enough of X, Y, and Z? You know, just it's if you don't have diabetes and you're listening to this, it can be exhausting and you don't even know that that's kind of mentally what you're going through in that period of time. Something that I am very happy to interview women, especially those of us who have lived as long as we have with this disease, that you have children. Yes. Because I was told never to have children. There's no way.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I'd love to, I love to share that story because it's, it's a miracle that I have A biological son and an adopted daughter. And now I have a bonus son, but you know, I was told that. I probably shouldn't have kids, but that wasn't completely ruled out until I was 21. And I was diagnosed with diabetic kidney disease. Hmm. And it was the same year that Steel Magnolias came out. (laughs) And I remember going to the theater with my college girlfriends and we're watching this. And I'm thinking, this is my life. If I have a baby, I will die. And I'm going to have to have a kidney transplant probably. And I mean, it was just horrifying because as a College student, you, you think your whole life is ahead of you and you have all this promise and optimism for the future. And so I felt like that was the mark of me not being a perfect diabetic. That, that was Mm -hmm. kind of my punishment for not being a perfect diabetic is that I got diabetic kidney disease and that really fueled my already perfectionist types of uh, behaviors. And so thankfully I, a few years later, you know, I tightened up my eating. I lived less like a college student and more like a responsible adult and Mm -hmm. tightened up my eating and went to see a, an endocrinologist. And she did some tests and she said, well, your kidneys are functioning at a hundred percent. There's no reason why you couldn't have a baby. And I said, but I have biopsy samples that have been looked at by two different hospitals. And I was told I was going to have to have a kidney transplant. And so she ran all the tests again. And she said, you're, kidneys are functioning at a hundred percent. And for years and years and years and years, there was no one that could give me a medical reason for why that was happening. And I felt like God healed my kidneys so that I could have a baby. And I, so I ended up having two miscarriages before I had my son who ended up being a very healthy nine pound, two ounce, two ounce baby boy. And has never had any, he doesn't show any signs of diabetes or right. pre-diabetes. He's super healthy. And like I said, almost 25 years old. But knowing that my I'd gone through the miscarriages and that it was really tough on a body, especially a diabetic body, to be pregnant. During my pregnancy, I was taking 10 blood tests a day plus five shots. And then I got on the pump within a couple weeks of my, of my pregnancy diagnosis. And,
0: and what what pump did you start with?
1: Oh, I was on the Medtronic and I can't even remember what it was called, but you know, 25 years ago, 26 years ago almost. And so, yeah, I started, started on the pump back then and haven't really looked back. I have tried the Omnipod. I was a guinea pig for Sansom research here in Santa Barbara
0: mm-hmm.
1: and got to test the early Omnipods, which I loved as well. I just, it's a little bit bulky for me and the way I wear my clothes. So and now funny. I'm on a
0: tandem. It's funny. Okay. So you're on tandem. So you've you've tried what's available and yeah. I'm a huge advocate for try what's necessary. If you can get access to it, let's be honest, that can be difficult and right. figure out what's best for you. And I think it's funny when you say bulky, because like, I've never been on a pump because I didn't want to be connected to a tube. Hmm. And just like, how do I, what? we all have our own things there. So I'm happy to find out that you. Are you enjoying the new tandem and the algorithm and everything?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I was sharing with a friend yesterday about it and just how, you know, you can sleep through the night because you can be assured that the algorithm is going to work to keep you in a really great range. Yeah. And that if you're going too low, it's going to adjust. And if it, your body isn't responding the way the algorithm thinks it is, it's going to alarm the heck out of it so that you wake up and eat something. And right. yeah, I really just feel so much freedom. I can't live without my Dexcom. I mean, even more than the pump, but just so blessed. And actually, when I was watching the human trial, I was just crying for the people that were in the trial. And I thought, you know, even if I had the opportunity, my life is so good with the technology that I have today. I think I would just forego it and let someone else get the trial before me because why mess up something for me, that's really great when someone else probably needs it more.
0: Oh, that's so great. I got to say two things to that. And this interview is not about me, but it's just about how different these things are is I applied to be a part of the trial and mm. went through the second phase and was too healthy. I, my A1C was a six. And I understand research and that they needed higher numbers, but it was like disappointing. And I'm like, ah, I'm willing to sacrifice my body and they won't. But you know, I understand that. And um, And I don't know if you saw today through all the And I can say this now because it's public knowledge. Tandem just acquired a a tubeless insulin pump company. Oh, cool. So I'll be curious to see how that shifts out. And again, it's about advancements in technology and we get to choose what's going to work best for us. One of the things and one of the many reasons why I wanted to interview you is the word recovering perfectionist. I think that most people with diabetes deal with that. And whether you realize it or not, we all look at numbers. We're judged Mm -hmm. by a number. We judge ourselves by a number. We shame ourselves if something's not going right. And so let's talk a little bit about how you came to that and what your thoughts on what does that really mean to you?
1: Yeah. So, so glad that you asked that because I have found my life is so much freer once I would act could actually acknowledge that I was a perfectionist and that the behaviors weren't really serving me any longer. So I grew up and as a kid, I was very organized. And like I said, a rule follower, and I wanted everything to be perfect. I, I That's kind of my personality a little bit. I'm very type A and I'm the oldest child. But then when I was diagnosed, I felt like I was thrust into this world of you. Not only are you genetically and behaviorally this way, but you have to be this way to be a healthy human. Yeah. And like you said- you have to weigh your food. You have to write it down. You have to track trends. You have to look at patterns. I've always struggled with being a weight that I wanted to be. I have always been a little bit heavier than I've wanted. I exercise every day. I mean, I'm, there's no reason why I should weigh less than I do, but it just doesn't, that's not how my body works. And I'm very healthy, but I have for years tracked every I, single, single thing.
0: I got to ask really quick because I, when you think about Cause I could, I feel like I could lose 20 pounds. I mean, if you look yeah. at the standards of whatever, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this obese. And I think that's ridiculous. Me too. And I think we look great. Like, why are we putting this heavy load on us? Right. And all I can think about is how can I lose weight? And I, I'm doing everything. I'm just like you. I'm tracking everything. I'm healthy and all these other things. And I'm glad that you're talking about that because. We're body shaming ourselves, essentially.
1: Yeah, and you know, it took me until I was into my mid forties to really give some thought to the to the pressure that I put on myself because mm-hmm. I've tried every version of every diet, diabetes related and not diabetes related. You know, and I can lose twenty pounds, but then I gain it back, and I don't get any healthier. I just become more obsessed with my data. Yeah. And what I really liked about that book that you collaborated on was the awareness that there's not one path that fits every person yeah. and that we can accept ourselves and each other for who we actually are. But so it was probably, you know, like I said, well into my mid forties when I finally came to this, what if I actually stopped weighing, measuring, tracking, trending, mm. spending so much mental energy on this? and just tried intuitive eating. I know enough about carbs. I know enough about my body to know how much insulin I need to take. I still tracked my, I mean, I still looked at my blood sugars, but I didn't write them down. And about four to six months later, I went back to my doctor and I said, so this is what I've been doing, as you know. And she had been supportive because she knew how much pressure I put on myself, but also how much stress I had in the rest of my life going on at that time. And my A1C was exactly the same from <laughs> the time I was hyper tracking to the time I was intuitive eating and not being so rigid about my tracking. And so that opened a whole new window for me. I got involved in a, a diabe- diabetes and disordered eating online Group Mm -hmm. with a nutritionist who specializes in diabetes. And I did, I think it was an eight week zoom session with she and some other women. And it just helped me start to change that unhelpful chatty narrative in my head about food Mm -hmm. and expectations that I put on myself. That's very well
0: said. Unhelpful chatty narrative.
1: Yes. It's, and I feel like that's one of the biggest gaps that we have in our diabetes education. I've had the same doctor for. 30 years and I absolutely love her. We have a great relationship. But it wasn't until I brought up being involved in this group and talking about the stress on my mental health of trying to manage all this and just the amount of mental space that it took to manage this disease. No one, I mean, they had never given me anything on this. There were no support groups that I knew of, the the support groups that I had been to. Yeah. Were very, not about the emotional support. It was more about the functional, like, well, do you know how to give a shot? Do you know how to give, get the air bubbles out of the tube? Do you, you know, very. <laughs> and you're like, I got like, this. I've been, I'm yeah, doing this for that's, eight decades. <laughs> that's diabetes 101. I'm on diabetes, like 1227.5. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh my gosh! Okay, let me ask you when it comes to the eating because, like, I am so I make sure I eat breakfast. I have my lunch. I might have a snack in between if my blood is a little low. I always eat dinner. Do you feel like, and when you changed your way of thinking there, and I'm asking for two reasons, do you still are you still very rigid with that?
1: No, I really have really gone to the intuitive eating part because so some days I'll I almost always work out in the morning before I start my work day. And some days when I'll do a hard workout, I won't be hungry for two hours afterwards. Right. And then I'll make, you know, eggs and toast or something like that. But I know how I'm doing because I'm looking at my Dexcom constantly. And so I really try to eat more based on my hunger level and what my Dexcom is telling me. But I do always eat dinner.
0: That's so, I'm so glad to hear that because I'm I'm trying to and with some new diabetes management tools I'll be talking about in the new year. I want to shift into that mentality. So thank you for sharing that. Something else that I'm so happy we're talking about is perimenopausal. Ah, my
1: the subject from hell. <laughs> yeah.
0: Bodies are changing. Blood sugars are changing. So many things. So let's talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, because I didn't have anybody tell me that we are more likely to start menopause about seven years earlier than the average woman. Um, what that would do to our diabetes. I mean, period. Yeah. And uh, so, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about what's your perimenopausal life right, like right now.
1: Yeah. So, I am 52, going on 53 in a couple months. And I've been experiencing perimenopausal symptoms. My primary symptom was night sweats. And I've had that for about five years, hmm. but not having super irre- irregular cycles until the last year. And it's been so interesting to try to figure out because my cycles used to be exactly 28 days. So I had a basal pump profile for every single week of the month based on what I knew my body was going to be doing. And now I feel a little bit unmoored because I don't, you know, I can go 80 days and not have a period. And so it's like, am I in my sugars just difficult because I am, my body thinks I'm mid cycle or just about to start, you know, I, and so that's been a really challenging and just not having any there aren't good resources about this. I feel like they haven't done a lot of studies about how it affects women's bodies. Um, and now I'm going through that. I get really angry really quickly. And I, that's not a characteristic that's typical of me. I was never really PMSy, And so now I'm trying to get in to see my OBGYN to help save me from this, save, you know, save my husband from this, because <laughs> some days I'm not a very nice person.
0: I have literally said to people recently, I will throat punch you. I might stab you in the side. (laughs) I mean, like, and it's like flip of the switch, like shit hits the
1: fan quickly. Yeah. I feel like I go from (laughs) zero to 60 in five seconds. And (laughs) I've always had this, it'll take me six months to get to the mad part. And now I'm in the complete opposite where I can just be irrationally fly off the handle. and, And so I really don't like that. On the other hand, I'm trying to embrace this as part of life. I there used to be a a total perception that menopause meant you were no longer a vibrant, thriving woman, and I just don't think that's the narrative at all these days, and I so, feel like I'm in the best part of my life and I finally figured out who I am and how I can serve people, and I feel more alive, joyful, and happy than I've ever felt. So I, I try to just take this out with a grain of salt and <laughs> remind myself that this is going to pass and, but can it just pass like yesterday?
0: <laughs> How quickly can we get through this? Yeah.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> and again, I'm happy that we're talking about it and going back to, and again, your mentality, your attitude with everything. Let's talk a little bit about, say so you have a book that's I out do. and let's talk about what it is and why you wrote it.
1: Yeah. So my book is called Off Script: A Mom's Journey Through Adoption, A Husband's Alcoholism and Special Needs Parenting. And it was my COVID baby. I always knew when I was in the midst of my struggles, particularly with my daughter. I'll just, a little backstory. She was adopted from Russia at 16 months old, mm-hmm. severely malnourished and delayed. And from the time we brought her home from Russia, she was uh just very delayed and trying to help her thrive in this environment, get her the medical care. But we had therapy five days a week, different kinds of therapy to help her swallow, talk, play. Wow. Um, that delayed. Wow. Every kind of, yeah. So she was so at 16 months, she was more like a seven or eight month old. And we were naive Americans thinking that, well, we will bring her to America. She'll have love, a stable home environment. We can take her to the doctor at any point. We we have access to resources. And it wasn't that simple. And so this whole journey of parenting her has been addressing her reactive attachment disorder, where Mm. she doesn't bond correctly to people. So if she met you, Amber, she'd walk up and say, oh, hi, I love you. Mm -hmm. But it took her about 14 years to say, I love you to me, the Uh primary caregiver, to do it on her own accord. And so that, and she also suffers from bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. and, um, excuse me, autism and a number of other things. So I wrote the story because I wanted to help other parents who were going through this to realize that there wasn't a script to life. And if you, I always grew up thinking if I was perfect enough, if I loved God and my family and served others, I would have this blessed life. And when my life started going off script, I was so ashamed and I felt like it was all my fault. And it was because I wasn't perfect enough. And and it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't, I had no control over it. It wasn't my fault. And I didn't, I wasn't getting something because I deserved it. I was getting something because life happens and you can respond to how things happen, however way you choose. But you, I I just chose that I was going to thrive in spite of it and get through it. So had that. And then I also had my first husband of almost 19 years was an alcoholic. So that was going on with my daughter at the same time. And then my son when he was in high school, started using drugs and all this kind of converged at the same time it, between 2013 and 2015 and was literal hell. And I actually don't even know how I managed my diabetes then. And I stayed standing with my also had a very intense job as public information officer working emergencies. And I look back and I'm, I'm just like, I'm so grateful that I made it through, but I felt like, to your question. I felt like last in 2021, it was my year to write the story, to share the hope and the lessons that I had learned about myself and about parenting and about marriage and how we can rewrite the script in our minds and, you know, change our lives for the better. And I could have never envisioned the life I have now based on what I was going through back then. But if I wouldn't have gone through all that, I wouldn't be married to my amazing husband that I'm married to now. And my son is thriving and has been clean for over six years. And my daughter is stable. So, you know, I felt like it's okay to finally be authentic instead of a perfectionist. And so that's why I named my publishing company is called Recovering Perfectionist Press. Just Mm -hmm. want to embrace that we do not have to be perfect to be valuable people and joys. To the world.
0: Oh, that's so well said. And thank you for sharing. I think diabetes or not, a lot of people need to hear that um, as we're all striving to be this perfect version of ourselves. And we don't even know what that looks like in my oh, mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I had people tell me that when, I, when my life looked really perfect on the outside and I had it all together, I was not as effective as helping people as I am now in telling the Challenges and struggles of life. People can relate to me a lot more when I'm being honest about what's going on. Yeah. So I'm happy to listen and be there for people going through the difficult times and to just be witness to that it's okay and you can get through this. And um, I've been there.
0: Well, and uh, two things I want to end with is that you've partnered in reading a little bit more about you with different organizations supporting mental health and substance abuse. abuse, Excuse me. Is there any particular organization that you want to talk about or anything like that? Because I I know about mental health issues, but, and I, I mean, I'm familiar with both, but was it hard to rally that with those people or is it, I mean, I've always found it's open arms and we all are working towards the same goal and the more people we can touch and reach the better. So can you speak to that at all?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Well, I'd love to elevate NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, because they have mm. chapters all over the United States and I believe Canada that are there to help families and people that have are experiencing mental illness and mental wellness challenges. And it wasn't till my daughter was a little bit older after she was already out of high school that I got involved in a family to family group. And they really take you through a program with people that have been there. And it was so helpful. So I would highly encourage anyone who has a family member, loved one with mental illness to seek that out. And right now you can get almost everything by Zoom as well. So it works for a lot of different schedules. I also got involved in the Behavioral Wellness Commission for our county because I wanted to be specifically give support and input on how people with mental illness are treated here. Mm -hmm. Because I found with my daughter, she has an intellectual disability and mental illness. And those two systems don't often talk to the benefit for the benefit of the client. Right. And so I want to help eliminate some of those barriers because many people are dual diagnosis. Same with substance abuse, people with substance abuse and mental illness and you know, I spent so many years of keeping myself from being involved in groups because I was so ashamed of why I couldn't figure this out, why I wasn't perfect enough. I wasn't involved in a diabetes support group. I wasn't involved in a parent support group. And now that's when people say, well, what is your advice for people going through difficult times? My number one answer is find your tribe, find the group of people that can understand and lift you up. And even if you don't exactly fit into it. Like my daughter's, she has such a complex cornucopia of diagnoses that it wasn't like I could just go to an adoption group or an autism group because she's just got a very complex situation. But even being in one of those groups that didn't exactly match would have given me a lot more support than I had. So I'm so, so grateful for you and people like you that run programs and are committed to bringing us together to have important conversations. Yeah. Because we don't always get them when we're in the doctor's office.
0: We know we don't get them in the doctor's office. I mean, and that's, that's terrible to say no offense to the medical community and what I want to end with. And one of the things that I really enjoy about you and your story is, and I'm literally reading it. Diabetes is more of an art than a science. Absolutely. And yeah. Speak to that a little bit if you can.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the, I don't want to disparage doctors in the medical community. They've done so much for us and they approach it one specific way, but the one plus one equals two or the 15 grams of carbs plus one unit of insulin <laughs> equals a b- b- blood sugar. 100 is like the unicorn. It so rarely happens, but yeah, that's kind of the message we're given. And so I've just tried to embrace diabetes as recognizing that sometimes the painting looks wonderful and you did your very best and your artistic skills came together. And sometimes the painting is crappy, even though you did everything right. You used the right brush, you used the right paint on the right canvas at the right time. And so I feel like that saying gives us a little permission to just live our lives and do our very best and not beat ourselves up when the equation doesn't work out as it's supposed to.
0: Oh, yes. And last thing that I'll say, and I've said this in so many episodes in the past couple of years and something that has really helped me transform my way of thinking about life and myself and how I react to things is the word perfectly imperfect.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And if I love myself exactly as I am right now, even though that's very difficult sometimes, then other great things will happen from that. Instead of shaming myself and wanting to live in this hole, for lack of a better term. And it's I'm so happy that the message that you're putting out, and if people are interested in purchasing your book, Offscript, what, how can they find it?
1: So it's on Amazon. You can find it at tinyurl.com forward slash buy Offscript. They can also go to my website, ValerieCantella.com. There's a A lot of stuff about the book, but I also have a blog. And if people want to reach out and just to chat with someone, if you're, if any of those topics kind of resonated with you, if you're, it's about being diabetic or it's about parenting a special needs child or loving someone that's an alcoholic. Mm. I'm more than happy to hop on a zoom and just chat about it and see if there's a way for me to provide encouragement, but also future coaching. So yeah, just reach out to me. I'd love to help.
0: Well, and all of these resources will be available in the show notes. And just with you saying it like that, I'm just like, ding, I thought of like three people I want to introduce you to that they could definitely use your, (laughs) a little bit of your wisdom and help. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for taking time to be on the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. And I will be sure to include your book on my new website that's been renovated with links to everything else as well. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Valerie's comment that diabetes is more of an art than a science is dead on, in my opinion. I really appreciate her honesty and ability to overcome all of the curveballs life throws at us. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more about how you can purchase a copy of her book. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diabetes and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrain.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone.
1: Yes, uh-huh.